I'm going to read um, some passages just now. We've been looking at guidance. We're going to continue looking at that. First of all, from Judges chapter 6, from verse 36. We read, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. And then from 1 Corinthians 14, reading from verse 29. And here the Apostle Paul says, Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Let's just pray together. Father, again, we just come before you and we thank you for just all the good things that you give us, for the many different ways that you bless us in our lives. And we bring our offering to you now this morning as an expression of our gratitude. But we know that you speak to us in so many different ways. You provide for us in so many different ways. And we pray that you'll give us understanding of some of the ways in which you input into our lives to lead us and to guide us. Lord, be with us. Lord, speak to us. Lord, lead us in your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, today I want to to look with you, as I promised that I would at the very beginning, at some controversial issues in guidance. Now, because of the limitations of time, and because in these kind of areas it's so easy to become confused, certainly for me anyway, that's, that's why these issues are controversial and because of that clarity then is is so important. Because of this, I'm going to devote my time this morning to looking at at two subjects, two different issues, one of which I see as being a a fairly big issue in congregational guidance, that is the place of prophecy for what should you do when, if someone brings what they claim to be a prophecy from the Lord, to the church? How should you handle that? How should you deal with it? What significance, if any, should you attach to it? Do you just reject it out of hand? Do you quietly ignore it, hoping that the person concerned will just forget eventually and and go away? Or do you feel that we should submit to it unconditionally? Because that person believes it's the word they have from the Lord, maybe even prefixing what they say, the word that they bring, with a thus saith the Lord, or 
And I, the Lord your God, say to you, what should we do? And more importantly, what biblical basis have we got for what we do? I want to examine this with you and suggest to you a biblical understanding of prophecy that I found a number of years ago that for me has been a great help in in the way that I think in this area that gave me a real liberty and a real new freedom from fear. Also, I want to to look at with you as well at what more often is is an issue in guidance for the individual. That is the importance of fleeces. Most of you, I'm sure, know what I'm talking about here. That is the practice that's said to be based on the example of Gideon we've just looked at, of saying to God that if he will give you a certain sign, then you will either take or not take, as the case may be, a certain course of action. I actually came across during the week an example from the the writing of Adrian Plass of one such fleece. Here it is. On Friday the 20th of December, he wrote in his diary, laid a fleece. If a midget in a Japanese admiral's uniform came to the door at 9.04 precisely, I would know that God wanted me to sing carols. 9.05, a miracle, no one came. That's that then. Leonard Thin came at 10.30 selling charity cards, bought 50. Well, is that a legitimate fleece to lay? And if not, why not? And what is a legitimate fleece? What constitutes a legitimate fleece? I want to look at that with you this morning. Look not here at what we would like things to be, or even perhaps the way we've always understood things to be. Now, what I want to try and uncover and look at with you is, again, what the Bible actually says. So let's look then now first at the place of prophecy in congregational Guidance, And where I I think we have to begin here is where we always should begin, and that's by checking out that our foundations are right, that we've got the foundations in there. So looking first of all then at the place, at the nature, sorry, of Old Testament prophecy. And when you actually examine Old Testament prophecy, you find that there are two main elements to prophecy in the Old Testament. There is foretelling, that is proclamation, and then there is foretelling. There's prediction in the sense that the the prophet then applied and interpreted God's word to the people in the situation of his day, and then in connection with this, often went on from this to predict future events. Take, for instance, just one random example, the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58, 13 and 14, where he says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and by not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you see, this prophecy then, in common with many of the other prophecies, 
is simply a matter of the word of the Lord that's already been given. This time in Exodus 31, 16, part of the Ten Commandments, being then taken up by a prophet and applied to a current situation with some indication of what the results will be if that word is either obeyed or disobeyed. Some other things that it's important, I think, for us to note about Old Testament prophets and about the nature of Old Testament prophecies is that these men are seen to speak with absolute authority. Seen to speak the very words of God. And so as in the prophecy we've just looked at, this is expressed then through phrases like, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Or in other cases, and this is frequently the case, this is expressed by the prophet speaking for God, speaking God's word in the first person. For example, in 1 Kings 20, 13, when we're told that a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But this authority, far-reaching as it undoubtedly was, this was accompanied by incredibly high standards. For if a prophecy failed in any way, if a prophecy, say, wasn't wholly good and so in harmony with the character of God, or if it didn't, didn't come to be, if it wasn't true, then that one mistake registered this prophet as a false prophet. Find that in Deuteronomy 18.22. And then brought him under sentence of death. Deuteronomy 18.20 says, But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. So to be a prophet then, in the Old Testament, to speak with absolute authority God's very words, the words that we now treasure as the Word of God, as the Bible, this was a high calling then. A very high calling. Okay, well, keeping that in our minds, let's move on now to look at the nature of New Testament prophecy. And here what I want to share with you, by and large, are the insights of a man called Wayne Grudem that I've found really, really helpful. A man whose teaching here has found acceptance with people as different as John Packer and John Wimber, who you'd normally think have been miles apart in this area, very opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and in order just to try and communicate to you the things that I've found so helpful, let me ask you this question. Who in the New Testament was seen to speak without error God's very words that we now treasure as the Word of God. Who? Of course, the apostles. That's who. And so I would then suggest to you, and I'm personally convinced that it's true, that it's the New Testament apostles who take up the mantle of the Old Testament prophet. They are the foundational prophets. Now, you might have some difficulties with that. Like, for instance, you might ask, if the apostles were prophets in this sense, then why not call them that? Why call them apostles? Why use this term, 
at all. Well, let me suggest to you two reasons, uh, choices out of a range of possibilities. First of all, by New Testament times, the word, the title, prophet, had become so devalued in everyday usage that it just didn't have the weight anymore to get across the unique nature of what God actually wanted to do in and through these men. It's a bit like today's use of the word superstar. You know, it's become so widely used that that it's no longer relevant in the way that it was intended. And secondly, and this is much more positive, I believe that the Lord chose this new title, Apostle, in order to emphasize that a new thing had happened in Jesus Christ. That there was continuity with the Old Testament. That there was continuity with the the prophets and that Old Testament word of God. But that what the Lord had now done through Jesus Christ and the work that he was continuing through his apostles, that word meaning the messengers of Christ, that this was at the same time, this was something new, something unique. But you might have another problem with this. For you might say that if the apostles were prophets in this foundational sense, well, why then is it that both these offices are mentioned separately, are mentioned as two different things in places like Second, sorry, like Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, that talk about the foundation of the church. I mean, because there it says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens within God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as their cornerstone. Now, I don't want to go into this in too much detail because it wouldn't only kill you, it would kill me if I tried to do it. But just let me say that while this is one translation of the original text, the original language that it was written in, and it is an acceptable one, yet the more natural translation of that is this built on the foundation of the apostles who are also prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. You see, not two different offices, not two different separate ministries, but just greater detail, just an expanded description, if you like, if the one ministry. But you know, I kept a little bit back a minute or so ago. And that is another reason why I believe the apostles were called apostles and not prophets, was actually because of the prophecy of Joel. Joel 2, 28 and 29, that's repeated in Acts 1, 17 and 18. It says, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. You see, they were called apostles to separate them off. To separate off themselves and the Old Testament prophets, the other foundational prophets, from others in the New Testament who are prophets, indeed as it says here, all the Lord's people are potentially prophets, 
but whose prophecy is different in quality from that of the apostles and prophets of Old Testament days. Now, you might think, well, how can I say that? What right have I got to say that? And and what do I actually mean by that? Well, I say that because of what it says, particularly in 1 Corinthians 14, about the practice of prophecy in the early church. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak. Verse 30, if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Now you see, you didn't do that to an Old Testament prophet. You didn't stop a man with no suggestion of him finishing off what he was saying if only two or three were to speak. You didn't do that to a man who is speaking the very words of Scripture, the very words of God. Also what it says in in verse 29 about, about the testing of prophecy. That the others should weigh carefully, meaning basically to sift through, to evaluate what was being said. Again, you didn't do that to an Old Testament prophet. Because what that basically means is to sort out the good from the bad, to separate out the true from the false. But Old Testament prophets were either right or they were dead. One wrong statement, one inaccurate prediction, and they'd be written off as false. What does this mean, though? What is the difference between the apostles as foundational prophets and the other prophets of the New Testament? Well, it would seem that that this lies, at least in part, in the different extent to which they were under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The apostles and the Old Testament prophets called to a unique ministry, were wholly under the influence of the Spirit. Totally. Completely. Others, New Testament, with a gift of prophecy, called not to this foundational ministry, but capable to an extent to receive the the word from God. They seem to have been to a degree under the influence of the Spirit. But at the same time, capable of getting that mixed up that influence of the Spirit with their own thoughts, their own desires and inclinations. And if you want an example of this, a practical example, well, what about Agapus's prophecy in Acts 21, 10 to 11? Where we read there that he took Paul's belt, tied his hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Now you see, the essence of that prophecy was right, in that Paul was bound in Jerusalem. But it wasn't the Jews who bound him, it was the Romans. And he wasn't handed over to the Gentiles, rather they had to forcibly rescue him. You can read about it in Acts 21 from verse 27. So do you see then the difference between this kind of prophecy, where a a word from the Lord is very much intertwined with human thought and reasoning, and the prophecy of the apostles, which is wholly the word of God, as we now know it. And if you want a, a scriptural confirmation 
of the superiority of God's revelation given to the apostles to any other, then how about 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38, where Paul says, If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Now, there is so much more here that that I could say and would like to say, for instance, about the character of New Testament prophecy. The fact that what's seen in the New Testament outside of the prophet's teaching is much more about foretelling, much more about proclamation, that is, much more about the application of the word that's already been given than it is about foretelling, than it is about prediction. In fact, there are only three examples in Acts of out-and-out predictive prophecy. But you see, when you take this on board, in addition with what we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4, that everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. He who prophesies edifies the church. And, and please note, by the way, just how positive that is. Because while there are negative and judgmental prophecies in the New Testament, I want to tell you, they're few and far between. But when you put all this together. I believe you get a picture of prophecy in in the New Testament out with the apostles, basically running along the lines of something like this. This is what the Word of God says. So isn't this then what we should be doing now? This is what the Word of God says. So this, this kind of quality, this kind of life should be seen more among us or perhaps shouldn't be seen among us. But here it's not only the character of prophecy, also I believe the character of the prophet is is so important for us to to take some note of as well. For again you see, that the fact is so often ignored that there is a significant difference in character between Old Testament and New Testament prophets. And, and, And I believe that's because Old Testament prophets were called to speak to a people who though the Jews, although they were physically the people of God, yet they had many among them who had no real heart for God. They were the people of God in the flesh, but not in the spirit. New Testament prophets, though, are called to speak to a people who've been called out by God's spirit. They're called to speak to people, men and women, who've had placed in them a new heart for God, a new desire for God. And so because of that, although at times there might be some need for rebuke, yet as we've just seen, much more the New Testament prophet was called to encourage, was called to exhort, was called to, to edify, to build up the people of God. But you see, when you get a hold of, of that idea of the prophet being someone who's in in close fellowship with God's people, seeking to encourage them. And and when you line that up with what's said in 1 Corinthians 13 too about the the influence of love that must be there in prophecy, that a prophecy should spring from a heart of love. And so because of that, obviously should be shared in a, a loving and compassionate way. You know, as it says 
if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. When you put all this together with the need for a prophet to have a holy lifestyle, for how can a man speak from God if he's not walking with God? Then I believe this puts together a, a, a quite different picture of prophets in the New Testament to that which you know is perhaps normally experienced in different parts of the church today. Now from all of this, I want to make two practical points regarding the place of prophecy in the church, if indeed we believe there is a place for prophecy and various other gifts in the church of today. And that's a a big question that needs to be looked at in more detail, but that'll be later. But if we believe there is a place for these gifts, though, then, then let me just make these points. First, the practice that there is in some parts of the church of today of prefixing prophecies with thus saith the Lord, or I, the Lord your God, say to you, etc., is, I believe, unhelpful, if not unbiblical. Wayne Grudem, who I mentioned earlier, who's by no means anti-prophecy, he says, it must be said that in practice, much confusion results from the habit of prefixing prophecies with the common Old Testament phrase, thus says the Lord a phrase not used by any congregational prophets in the New Testament churches. The modern use of this phrase is unfortunate because it gives the impression that the words which follows are God's very words, whereas the New Testament does not justify that position. But you see, you know, again, the facts are that we are called as the church, to weigh prophecy, to evaluate it. The only way that we can do that, though, is against the Bible. So it's either got to be based on the Bible or in harmony with the Bible. But when someone says, thus saith the Lord, well, that would seem to raise that to the level of foundational prophecy, to the level of the Word of God that's not to be tested. And that, I believe, is inappropriate in the church today. And there are many... Bible teachers who come from a Pentecostal background who agree. Assembly of God leader Donald G. he once said, we hear to the point of weariness the phrase, I the Lord say unto you. The message should be given, he says, in much less elevated language. Now the second practical point I just want to make with you is that in, in my experience, the experience that I've had, not in this church, but elsewhere, Prophecies given have often not usually been positive and upbuilding. They've been negative and condemning, a way to pull the church down. And they've not been given in a loving way, but too often in a spirit of bitterness. Often these prophecies have been given by people who are not actually walking in close fellowship with the church but people who, because of their off-the-wall views and unusual personalities, who've maybe for that reason felt that they've been pushed to the fringe of the church. And so it seems to me that prophecy has maybe been taken up and been used as a vehicle by unhappy people to try and give weight to what's basically their distorted view about church life. And that 
is not prophecy in my mind. And lovingly, it should be rejected. So to summarize, I believe that there is a place for prophecy in the church. But this prophecy is not foundational prophecy. It's based maybe on the Word of God, but it's not in in its entirety or in any new way the Word of God. And of course, it is utterly right and sensible that the Lord actually should change the nature of prophecy in this way. Because you see, if all of God's people, take it what it said in Acts 1, had the potential to the ability to, to prophesy at a scriptural level, then how difficult then would it be to tell truth from error, to convince someone that what they were saying was not from the Lord? How hard would that be to handle? Well, I promise you I'd also look at the importance of fleeces. I will, but as this is a much more straightforward argument, much more limited, I want to come for you. I'm going to say an awful lot less about it. Most of you know the the incident very well. Gideon being told to do battle with the Midianite oppressors of Israel. Having various signs given to him. Above all, having God's word directly given to him that this was the Lord's will for him. But still here, asking God for other signs, asking God for miracles connected with the fleece to to prove to him beyond all his doubts that this was God's will for him. And upon this, some Christians have built a, a superstructure of guidance where they ask God to give them a certain sign, they call a fleece, to determine whether they will or will not take a certain course of action. So what do I have to say about this? Well, you know, there is a view, a rule, sorry, should I say, of biblical interpretation, and that is that we should always view in Scripture the obscure and the one-off in the light of the clear and the often repeated. Now, when we do that, what do we find? We find that this narrative is the only incident truly of its kind in the Bible. That this only happens once in the Old Testament and significantly it is never repeated or is it recommended in the New Testament. What, though, is the clear teaching of the Bible? Well, surely it's what Jesus said to Satan in Matthew 4 when he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So then, I would say that Gideon was wrong in putting out a place. That this showed a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. And Gideon himself, I I would say, admits as much in Judges 6, 39. When there he confesses, he's testing God's patience. So in the light of that then, and in the light of the clear teaching of the Bible, and also of the simple practical problem, that fleeces are things that can so easily be abused. They can be. For it's so easy, and our minds at times are so devious, that we can fix circumstances in in one way or another through a fleece to give us the guidance we want. For example, as as Gordon Fee and Donald Stewart say, we never put out an actual fleece 
for God to make wet or dry. Rather, we fleece God by setting up a set or set of circumstances. For example, this is an example they give. If someone from California calls us this week, then we'll let that be God's way of telling us that the move to California is the one he wants us to make. And they go on, never once in using this pattern do we consider that Gideon's action was really not a good one in as much as it showed his lack of trust in God's word that had already been given to him. But you know, here you might want to say, might want to interject, well, but what about the fact that God responded to Gideon's fleece, his request? And what about the fact that God has responded maybe to various fleeces that I've put out to him? Well, first, I would say that I see God's response to Gideon as an act of God's graciousness and compassion that we should not presume upon. You see, Gideon here was under incredible strain. And he was the man in this situation God wanted to use. And so I believe the Lord was gracious to him as he responded to him. And as for the fleeces that that we sometimes put out, well, I want to ask, first of all, how often are what we call fleeces really actually fleeces? You see, what God did in this fleece was an out-and-out miracle. Well, how often do we ask for a miracle in order to confirm guidance? No, we don't. More often, as, as I've said, we either abuse the fleece in a way that tries to fix our guidance, or, or what we call a fleece is really just a wise condition on which to base a decision. It's sensible. I mean, for example, before I would accept a call to a church, I was always want 80% at least of the voting members to invite me. And I, I would bring that before God. I, I would say that that's, you know, if that doesn't happen, uh, I, I won't accept a call. But you see, I don't use that as a fleece. I don't call it a fleece. Rather, I believe for once, that's me bet, get, being wise. It doesn't happen often. Because I believe that less than that wouldn't give a, an acceptable platform for ministry. Now, often I'm sure that what we call fleeces, what you maybe have called fleeces, are just the same. They're not really fleeces, and they're not an abuse of guidance. You're not trying to fix something. No, they are just wise conditions that prayerfully you lay out before the Lord. Well, those are two controversial issues in guidance. I know that maybe not everything I've said this morning has been easy to understand, and some of it might have been a bit new for you, might even been a bit unsettling for you. So let me then reassure you, these issues apart, that what we've said consistently through this series still stands. That if you have got a renewed mind, and you have if you're a Christian, And if you have a love for God's word, which you should have, and if you are continually seeking to live in submission to God and in submission to His Spirit, if God's glory comes first in your life for you, then do not be afraid. God will guide you. God will lead you. 
take heart in that. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you that you do make your way clear. That we need not fear that you won't show us your way because if we've got a faith in Jesus, we're your children and you love us. And you want to show us how to walk in your way. Lord, help us to be open to you, responsive to you, loving towards one another. And help us together to find your way for our lives individually and for the life of this church. This we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.